2 Kings chapter 9. The whole theme of the book of 2 Kings is covenants and character, looking at God's character, His faithfulness to His promise, and then, of course, His people. Sometimes they're faithful, sometimes they're not. Sometimes their character is good, sometimes it's not. And we've been looking at a particular set of kings where their character has not been good. In particular, we've been following Jehoram, uh, the wicked king of Israel, for the last six chapters. Time and time again, he refuses to trust the Lord. Well, now Judah also has a wicked king, and King Ahaziah. Both of these men are descendants of Ahab, and when we get to chapter 9, time has run out for them to repent. We're going to reference this quite a, a bit this evening, but in 1 Kings, when we were following Ahab's reign, God made Ahab and Jezebel a promise that he would wipe out their line because of their wickedness. And, you know, he's going to be faithful to keep that promise, even though he gave Ahab and his descendants many opportunities to repent. Sometimes we can read those verses and we say, you know, why would God do that to all of his descendants? That's a horrible promise to make, but God made it and gave them plenty of opportunities. He reached out to them to draw them to repentance, but they didn't. And so, chapter 9 begins God's faithful judgment to rid His people of their influence. So, chapter 9, verse 1, it says, And Elisha the prophet called one of the children of the prophets and said unto him, Gird up your loins, and take this box of oil in your hand, and go to Ramoth-Gilead. And when you come there, look out there Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him arise up from among his brethren and carry him to an inner chamber. And then take the box of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. And then open the door and flee and tarry not. He brings one of his students in. Remember, Elijah is most often we find him at the schools. He brings in one of the children of the prophets. That's a term for one of his students. And he says to him, Get your belt on. That's what it means to gird up your loins. Put your belt on. Get ready to work. I've got a job for you. You're going to Ramoth-Gilead. Now, Ramoth-Gilead is important. It keeps coming up as a city because this is the place where Syria and Israel keep fighting over it. And even though Jehoram was wounded in the assault in uh, verse 28 of chapter 8, we see there that he's wounded in verses 28 and 29 of the previous chapter, uh, Israel does finally recapture the city from the Syrians. Uh, This was a victory that Ahab could never find, and now his son finally has it. He's probably got to be feeling very triumphant. We did it. We finally did what even dad could not do. But he has to leave most of the army in the city while he travels to his summer palace in Jezreel to recover from his wounds, because the Syrians aren't just going to let him keep it. And so while he's there recovering, Ahaziah, the wicked king of Judah, he, and he's also, I think, his nephew, he comes to check on, visits to check on Jehoram, uh, Jehoram's recovery. And so he tells him, you're going to go to the Dramoth-Gilead, and when you get there, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go and come there and look out from uh, there Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. Now, Jehu, in the Assyrian records, it calls him a distant cousin of Ahab. Uh, but we don't know anything else about him. We don't know anything about his lineage, Jehoshaphat or Nimshi. We don't know who these people are. We only know that he was a high-ranking captain in the military. However, this is not the first mention of him in the Bible. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 16, remember when uh, Elijah had his pity party and he went down to Mount Sinai and said, nobody, nobody loves you but me? And God tells him, he goes, get up. I got work for you to do. 
want you to anoint Elisha to be your replacement. I want you to anoint Hazael to be the replacement king for Ben-Hadad in Syria. And I want you to anoint Jehu to replace the king of Israel. So we've had this guy, guy's name for a while, but this is the first time he actually shows up on the page. Now, we know that obviously since Elisha is sending someone to do this, that Elijah never did it. Elijah never did this task that God gave him. He either passed it on to Elisha or the Lord instructs Elisha to do what Elijah did not. And so he tells this young student, he says, you're going to go to Ramoth Gilead, you're going to find Jehu, this high-ranking captain in the army, and then you're going to make him arise from among his brethren. When you get there, you're going to find him with other people. You're going to call him out and say, listen, I'm, I'm, I need you to come to a, an inner chamber, a private room with me, because this message is for his ears alone. Don't say it to everybody. Say it just to him. And then when you get him in this private room, then I want you to take the box of oil that I'm giving you right now, to take it, and then pour it over his head and say that, thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. And then get out of Dodge. He says, flee and do not wait around to see what happens. Get out of there. Go in, give the message, get out. I read this and I thought to myself, I wonder how many times we get into trouble because we don't follow God's exact instructions, right? Hey, go share the gospel with that person. You know, you go share the gospel with them and then you get sidetracked in another, some other conversation. Or, hey, bring this up, you know, to your spouse, and then, you know, you bring it up, and then, but then you, like, go the step further and tell them what you're angry about. Lord, I'm frustrated. Go talk to him about it. Okay. You know, go talk to him about it. And you go talk to him about it, and you bring up all the other problems you have, you know, and all of a sudden this simple conversation turns into an argument. We linger, or we do more than God told us to, and then things don't go well. Sometimes the best thing is to give God's message and then just get out of the way and let him work. Verse 4, so the young man, even the young man, the prophet, the word there, young man, it means a servant or an attendant to the prophet. So this is uh, not just a student, but this is someone who is an assistant to Elisha. This is the exact same phrasing used in 2 Kings 6.17 to describe Elisha's new assistant. Remember when Gehazi got fired? He got leprosy because he tried to rip off Naaman, the, the Syrian. He had been a leper, and God healed him, and then, you know, he offered to pay Elisha, and Elisha said no. And then Gehazi said, oh, no, no, my master says, give me this, this, and this. And he, you know, he lost his job. This is the phrase used for the guy who's basically Elisha's training to be his replacement someday. Maybe this is the same young man. Whoever the student is, he follows his orders, and we see verse 5 here, he gets to, uh, verse 4, he gets to Ramoth Gilead, and verse 5, when he came, behold, it's just like Elisha said, the captains of the host were sitting. So he gets there and he sees Jehu sitting outside with all the other military leaders. And he says to him, I have an errand for thee, O captain. Obviously, he's pointing out Jehu. And Jehu said unto which of all of us? And he said, well, to you, O captain. He signifies, the word thee is singular. He signifies it's just for you, Jehu. But being singled out by the prophet must have made Jehu uncomfortable because he asks who else is the message for? Not just me, right? And the student repeats, no, it's just for you. Now, the reason Jehu is probably uncomfortable is because prophets, are, they're not incognito back then. They had special dress that they wore, a special mantle they wore, a robe, the cloak that they wore. Everyone knew that when a guy looking like that showed up, uh, that what kind of message he's bringing. He's not like a messenger from the king. This is a message from the Lord. And so, 
They go inside the home, and the student delivers a message. Verse 6. And he arose, and he went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head. They get in there. He does what Elisha says, and he says to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. And you shall smite the house of Ahab your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Jacob shall perish, and I'll cut off from Ahab him that urinates against the wall, and him that is shut up and left in Israel, and I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Debat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. And the dog shall eat Jezebel in the portion of Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and fled. Now, this is way more than Elijah told him to say, way more. But I'm inclined to think since he follows Elijah's instructions to a T and everything else, I think maybe it's possible that the writer just summarized, so he didn't have to repeat it twice, summarized the basic idea, you're the next king of Israel, but Elijah gave him the rest of this message too. It is possible he just did all this on his own, but it seems out of character with the rest of his actions because he's really precise. He says to him, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord even over Israel. That's something that Ahab and his descendants had forgotten, hadn't they? That they're the Lord's people, not your people. It's a good reminder for us, my spouse, my kids, those underneath my authority in work or church, they belong to Jesus, not to you and me, right? Understanding that truth must be at the foundation of of, of your thinking and my thinking or we will not be a godly leader. If you're a parent, you're a leader. You want to be a godly leader, you need to remember who they belong to. They belong to Jesus. They don't belong to you and me. In verse 7, not only does he say that, remind him the people are the Lord's. Verse 7, he says, you are the instrument of God's judgment. And you, he doesn't say someone else or you're going to be king and you'll pick someone else. He says, no, you shall smite the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. You're going to be my vengeance. This is obviously would not normally be a thing that would be okay to just rise up against your master. But in this case, the Lord says, you will be my instrument of vengeance. We read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 35 through 39, a portion of what we read, where the Lord is telling the people through Moses this song he sings. And he says, in Psalm 32, verse 35 through 39, to me belongs vengeance. To me belongs recompense. I'm going to one who's going to make the, balance the accounts. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them shall make haste. Why? For the Lord shall judge his people. He told them this. He said, there will come a time that if you won't respond to my reaching out to you and calling you to repentance, and I will deal with you. You're my people. I will deal with you. And it says that he will, the word here, it says repent himself for his servants, but it means he'll have compassion upon his servants. He's going to see what these wicked leaders are putting his people through, and he's going to have compassion on them when he sees that their power is gone and that there's none shut up or left. And he will say, where are their gods? their rock in whom they trusted. You know, Ahab and Jezebel, they had had zero compassion on God's servants. How many times did Ahab's son Jehoram threaten Elijah? 
Well, God, there comes a point where he says it's gone on long enough. God will finally right all those wrongs. And the reason is, is because he says, I want you to see the powerlessness of your idols. You guys turned to idols. These leaders, they, they led you in this direction and you followed them and so many of you have turned away onto idols and I want you to see the powerlessness of it. The point of God's judgment upon these wicked leaders is to bring the nation back to him. I don't think that's the case so much when I hear about people wanting God to deal with wicked people. I think people want God to deal with wicked people sometimes just so we don't have to deal with wicked people. And I think this is why vengeance is God's part and it's not your part and my part. You see, vengeance for me has no redeeming element. It doesn't. Anytime I'm seeking vengeance, there's no redemptive goal in it, only justice. But God is always interested in redemption, even when He's pouring out His wrath. When we look through the whole book of Revelation, and we covered this when we studied the book just a few years ago, God is reaching out his hand in wrath, yes, but he's reaching out his hand, trying to get our attention, calling us back to himself. God is always interested in redemption, even when he pours out his wrath. He says, Jehu, you're, you're going to be my instrument of judgment, but you will also fulfill the promise I made. Verse 8, for the whole house of Ahab shall perish. In 1 Kings chapter 21, again, I said I'll be referencing 1 Kings quite a lot tonight because there's so many uh, promises and predictions that God fulfilled that find fulfillment in this chapter. In 1 Kings 21, 21, this is after Ahab had tried to purchase the field of uh, the vineyard of Naboth. Naboth said, no, it's my inheritance from the Lord. Why would you, why would you ask me for that? You can't purchase it. It's, it's God's gift to me. There's no price I could put on that. Ahab went, you know, throws a pity party, and Jezebel says, why, why are you, why are you, you haven't even gotten up to eat. What's your problem? And Naboth won't give me, sell me his field. She goes, really? You're the king. Just take it. No, no it doesn't work that way. You know, I know that maybe how it works in your hometown, but not there. She's like, don't worry about this. I got this. She texts all the leaders, you know, of Naboth city in Jezreel and says, hey, set this up that he's, a, he's an idolater. Bring false witnesses up and accuse him, and then we'll stone him, and then it's problem solved. So it happens. And she says, Ahab, everything's fine. Go get your field. And he goes down, he gets his field, and he's hanging out, and he's like, this is great. I got my vineyard. And Elijah meets him, and he sees Elijah, and he's like, oh, you found me again, my enemy. Elijah says to him, I have found you because you have sold yourself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. And because of that, he says, I will bring evil upon you. I will take away your posterity. I will cut off from Ahab him that urinates against the wall, every male descendant, and him that is shut up and left in Israel. And I'll make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baish, the son of Ahijah. For the provocation with you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. And of Jezebel, he also spoke, also spoke the Lord, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. And him that dies of Ahab in the city, the dog shall eat. And him that dies in the field shall the fowls of, uh, of the air eat. They will not get a, a proper burial. So Elijah, he said this a long time ago, and now the fulfillment's happening. He says, you're going to be the instrument of God's judgment. You're going to fulfill God's promise. God keeps his promises. I will cut off in Ahab all the males 
Every male descendant, when it says him that urinates against the wall, it's referring to a male descendant. And again, I realize the writer of Second Kings is not saying, hey, let's talk about gender here. I realize he's not doing that. I, I get that. But I do think it's important to point out that the Bible defines gender in very simple terms from Genesis to Revelation. So we should not make it confusing. We don't need to make it more complicated than that because the Bible speaks of it very plainly. I'll cut off all the males uh, as well, and him that is shut up and left in Israel. The phrase shut up, uh, I know it's going to sound crass, but being able to, to pee on a wall meant you were a free man. The idea is you don't just get to do that if you've been shut up. The idea is if you've been arrested or you're out of favor or you've been locked up, you don't just get to do that. So the idea here is that maybe some of Ahab's descendants, maybe they've been out of favor or they weren't free to go wherever they wished. And God told Ahab, none of them are going to be spared. None of your descendants, whether they're doing well or not, I'm going to wipe them all out. doesn't matter if they've been, the word left there means to be disowned or abandoned. I don't care. Their status doesn't matter. The bloodline is going to be exterminated. And he compares them, verse 9, I'll make them, make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, house of Baasha. These were two previous kings of Israel who had done wickedly, and God exterminated their lines. There are no descendants of Jeroboam today. There are no descendants of Baasha today, and there, there will now no, be no descendants of Ahab either today. And there'll be none to bury him. All the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the portion of Jezreel. There shall be none to bury her, a dishonorable death for her. And then, just like Elijah instructed, he opens the door and he runs out. And it's a good thing he runs out because it's about to get crazy. Verse 11, then Jehu came forth to the servants of his Lord, so his fellow captains, fellow commanders, and one of them said to him, it's all well? This had to be a daunting experience to walk out. I mean, somebody just came and dumped oil on your head, so you can't be like, hey, guys, what was that about? Nothing. Like, like, the, like you can't just ignore it. I mean, maybe he did. Maybe he went and washed it all off. I don't know. And then came out like, what was that? He left like 45 minutes ago. What, what were you doing? I don't know. But clearly, this would be a daunting thing to kind of just walk out, try to go back to life like normal, because the truth is, a few minutes ago, all these guys were your colleagues, and now you might have to fight all of them to take down the king. And again, it's not like it happened in private. Yeah, I mean, the words were in private, but they all saw the prophet. They all know he's a prophet, so they're all curious. And one of them says, is it well, which is that word shalom. Is it good news, bad news? What's going on? I like Jehu's answer. Or they ask him, they say, why did this mad fellow come to you? The word mad fellow, someone who's not in the right state of mind, someone who acts like a maniac. I'll admit that it's a bit weird to mysteriously show up with a secret message, you know, for one guy and then just bolt afterwards. I mean, it's a little weird. I don't tend to do that. I don't tend to be like, ring, ring, ring. Hey, hello, this is Pastor Will. You're at God's instrument of judgment. You know, I don't <laughs> tend to do things like that. So I admit it's a little weird. But his behavior doesn't strike me as crazy or like maniacal. His message is almost a, a verbatim repetition of God's words to Ahab from the prophet Elijah 20 years ago. But sadly, this was the reputation the prophets had in that day, and probably because the prophets were very weird. Like if you go back to 1 Kings 22, when Ahab was asking his prophets for 
counsel from the Lord about whether he should go attack this city that they failed to take, that he, he died in the fight. First Kings 22.11, one of the prophets, this was his action, Zedekiah, the son of Keniah, he constructs horns of iron, and he, he puts them on his head. He says, thus says the Lord, with these shall you push at the Syrians until you're victorious. That's a little weird. I mean, I know I just did it now, but I'm not doing it because I'm telling you. You know, and then in verse uh, 24, the one true prophet, Micaiah, says, you know, the Lord, the Lord says you're going to die. Well, then Zedekiah, it says the son of Keniah, he went close to Micaiah and he punched him in the face, smote him on the cheek, and he said, which way went the Spirit of the Lord for me to speak unto you? I mean, these guys are weird. This is not what you want to like see at church, like brawl, you know, prophet brawling. That's not it, right? And to be honest, I must confess that false prophets and false teachers frustrate me. I watch them sometimes. Some of their antics, you know, climbing around the seats while they're teaching and stuff. I'm like, I, I went to Blue Man Group once, and they kind of get in your face. And they, it's a cool show and stuff. And the whole idea behind the show is to kind of break down the barriers, whatever. And so there was one, we were sitting there, and, and little Bev, you know, I mean, she's a, she's a wee lass, you know. And, and she's just sitting there next to me. This big guy's just standing on the chair right in front of her. And I'm like, I, I don't didn't need to see your, you that closely. But that's a show where you kind of expect a little weirdness and stuff. I don't want to go through that at church, right? I don't care how much you work out, Mr. Buff Pastor. I don't need to see your glutes, okay, while you're teaching. I don't need to see you climbing on the chairs. So I get it. I get frustrated by false prophets and false teachers. They make, I think they make our job harder because many unbelievers associate us with, their, with the weirdos and with the maniacs, which I do think is why it's so important that we just stay the course. Just stay on track. God's words instead of my ideas. Most of my ideas are bad, you know. God's instructions instead of my plans. My plans aren't good. Well, when they ask him, what did this crazy guy tell you, man? It says, he says unto them, well, you know the man and his communication. <laughs> Jehu attempts to minimize the event by agreeing with their opinion of the prophets. What do you mean? Why are you asking me what he's like? He's a crazy guy. You know, you know, you already, you already know these guys. You already got him pegged. It was crazy talk. Nothing important. But these aren't just like guys at a restaurant that saw something weird. These are guys he's been in the heat of battle with. They fought and they've killed together. And he likely has oil dripping from his head. So they can tell he's lying. Look at verse 12. And they said, it is false, which it's a lie. You're lying to us, man. Tell us now, they say, which means, please, you got to tell us. At least give us a good laugh. Jehu has a decision to make. Tell him the truth. Tell him the lie. Or you can tell him it was personal, doesn't want to share about it. Jehu decides to tell the truth. Thus and thus he spoke to me, saying, thus says the Lord, I've anointed you king over Israel. Boom, it's on the table. That could have gone in a lot of directions. They could have laughed, dismissed it as crazy talk. They could have laughed and said, you're not, don't think he's serious, do you? They could have taken it seriously, and they could have labeled Jehu a traitor for letting the prophet go free. I mean, that's, that's treachery, man. You can't just let somebody say something like that. But instead of any of those responses, you can see the effect of a true prophet's words in the hearts of men. 
Because instead of thinking the message is the words of a madman, which was their opinion just a second ago, they throw in their lot with Jehu. Verse 13, then they hasted. They didn't waste any time. They took every man his garment and they put it under Jehu on the top of the stairs and blew with trumpets saying, Jehu is king. Jehu must have, whatever the house was, the private room he went into or whatever, must have been upstairs because when he comes out, doesn't get very far. And so, you know, what's going on? He tells them, they run up the stairs, put their cloaks down so he can walk. Instead of stepping on the steps, he'll step on their cloaks. This is significant because remember the disciples did this for Jesus when he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, right? Letting someone walk in your clothes was a sign of your submission to them. So basically saying, Jehu, we're your men. We're, we're your faithful servants now. And then they notify the entire army that a change of leadership has occurred. Jehu is king. Jehu is king. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, verse 14 says, conspired, means to plot a coup with others. They conspired against Jehoram, the king. They immediately get to work on a plan to take him out. This is fast. I mean, really fast. Like, I'm a slow mover. I don't move quickly. I know some people who do move quickly, but this is fast. Which leads me to believe that Jehoram was not well-liked by his military commanders. And the writer seems to indicate why in this little aside here in verses 14 and 15. He says, now Jehoram had kept Ramoth-Gilead, kept a guard. In other words, he had placed a huge force there at Ramoth-Gilead he and all Israel, because of Haziel, the king of Syria. Israel and Syria had fought many wars over this region, and this was the key city. So he, he knows Syria is going to try to take this city back as soon as possible. So he keeps the whole army there. Nobody gets to go home. But note, verse 15, but King Jehoram, he was returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds which the Syrians had given him when he fought with Haziel, king of Syria. He went home to his summer palace. And it seems that this was a source of resentment to the army, especially these captains. Well, once they come up with a plan to deal with Jehoram, Jehu gets real with them. He says, verse 15, and Jehu said, if it be your minds, if this is your heart, then let none go forth nor escape out of the city to go tell it in Jezreel. In other words, put the whole city on lockdown. I hope that didn't trigger anybody. Put the city on lockdown because we will need the element of surprise if we want to pull this off. Verse 16, so Jehu rode in a chariot and he went to Jezreel for Jehoram lay there. And Ahaziah, king of Judah, was come down to see Jehoram. Dun, dun, dun. Everything's exactly perfect for him to decapitate the leadership of the nation. Verse 17, and there stood a watchman on the tower in Jezreel and he said, spied the company of Jehu as he came. Company refers to a large amount of troops. The word company comes from a, a phrase that means abundant or many. So when referring to people, it referred to a large army or a large amount of troops. He sees this army coming and, and he tells the king, and Jehoram said, take a horseman and send to meet them and let him say, is it peace? When the army comes in and the watchman tells him, he's like, I didn't order any, anybody to come back from Ramoth Gilead. What's going on? He, he's confused. He, did Ramoth Gilead fall to a counterattack? He doesn't know. So he sends a, a rider, he orders a rider sent out to find out if it's good news or bad news. Again, the word peace is shalom. 
That was the common greeting you might have when you ask it as a question, is it shalom? When you use it in the question form, the wider meaning of shalom comes into play. Are things good, complete, whole, well? Where are we at? Is it good news? Are things good or bad? Verse 18, when the so there went one on horseback to meet him, Jehu, and when he gets there, he says, thus says the king, is it peace? It's good news or bad news? And Jehu, Jehu said to him, what have you to do with peace? Turn you behind me. And the watchman told, saying, the messenger came to them, but he's, he's not coming back. So this guy rides out, and he says, this is the order of the king. Is it good news, bad news? Tell me. And Jehu says, what business of yours is my news? Which reveals a lot to the messenger because the messenger's question was, here's your orders, Jehu. Is it good news or bad news? Thus says the king. Jehu basically says, your orders don't apply to me. Get in line. I'm your king now. You take orders from me. The messenger complies. Doesn't tell us why, but I suspect he's probably thinking, if I turn around, I'm a dead man because I can tell what's going on and he's not going to let me get back to the city to warn the king. Verse 19, then he sent out a second one on horseback, which came to them and said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu answered, same thing, what have you to do with peace? Turn you behind me. So the guy in the wall, the tower, he's watching this and he sees all this and he says, uh, he even came to them and he's not coming back either. But then he gives the king some more information. He says, and the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. And so Jehoram said, all right, make ready my chariot. And his chariot was made ready, and Jehoram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot, and they went out against. They came out facing. They weren't facing the same direction. They were coming from the opposite direction as Jehu. And they, where they met was in the portion of Naboth, the Jezreelite. That's the the guy that Jezebel had murdered so that Ahab could take the vineyard. Now, this guy says, you know, I've been watching, and the, the way this guy rode his chariot in, that, that's only one guy who drives his chariot like that, and it's Jehu. He drives furiously, which means like a madman. When I read about Jehu, because we're going to be with him for a few chapters, he he strikes me as a fierce warrior, a, a pretty savage individual. So it doesn't surprise me that he would have a reputation for riding like a madman in battle. But this also shows me that he's riding like a madman is that he wasted no time getting to Jezreel. Remember, his planned success is based on getting to the kings quickly, getting there before any word can get to him about what happened in Ramoth-Gilead, that, that they blew the trumpets and said he's the next king. And so, him coming in furiously like that would look like he was fleeing, like something bad had happened. They fled the city. Well, when two messengers don't come back, Jehoram wrongfully <laughs> assumes the war's gone so bad that Jehu doesn't want to send the news via a messenger. He wants to tell me face to face. He doesn't think for a minute that Jehu has turned against him. And so he says, make ready my chariot. I guess he wasn't so injured. And I think that's the feeling the captains had as well, and his arrival confirms the reason for their coup. And so they met. What are the odds that Jehu just happened to stop in the field that Ahab stole? 
think it's more likely Jehu knew exactly what that field represented, and he planned to kill the king right there. That the two kings go without any army, soldiers, anything like that shows they didn't suspect anything. They still think this is about the war with Syria. And so verse 22, the confrontation. And it came to pass when Joram saw Jehu, he said to him, Is it peace, Jehu? And Jehu answered, What peace? So long as the whoredoms of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many. And man, you read that and you get a chill because you know he doesn't have a clue what's coming. What peace, which means how could our nation be well? How could our nation be sound? How could our nation be whole? And the whoredoms of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many. Whoredoms. The Bible oftentimes in the Old Testament, it, idolatry is, is seen as a, a form of unfaithfulness in marriage. Um, of, of whoredom, of becoming a prostitute. Uh, it would be like leaving your husband to become a prostitute because the life of, of a prostitute would be better than staying with your husband. The, the, the income, all that kind of stuff would be better than staying with your husband. And so idolatry was, was seen that same way, is that you, you, you have followed these idols like a prostitute because you believe that the idols would give you a better life than the Lord could. Israel was often tempted off the path God set for them, much like we are. You know, God isn't fair, or God isn't good, or following Jesus doesn't pay. I'd be happier if I lived life on my own terms. And so when Israel would go off into idolatry, they would go to these other gods because they were looking for prosperity or happiness or success or fertility or, or pleasure or something. You know, Baal, you control the weather. I've been praying to the Lord and, you know, and I've been struggling. But if I hear if I give you this offering like every week, then you'll give my crops rain. That sounds easier. Sounds better. It's interesting. The Lord... I had to think about this. The Lord, maybe I'm wrong, but this is my thoughts. The Lord, I think He asks both more and less than idols do. The Lord, what does He say? He says, give me your heart, know me, and follow me. That's far more than any idol asks for because an idol's not real, right? Idol doesn't care if you know them. An idol doesn't care if you spend time with them. An idol doesn't care if you pursue a relationship with them. They don't care about who you give your heart to or what you give your heart to. So God, in that sense, asks for more, but the Lord also asks for far less because God doesn't demand you bribe Him with offerings. The Lord just asks for something simple, something every human being can give regardless of their status in society. Follow me. Follow me. And that's why rejecting God's simple command for Israel to worship Him, why it was more than just selling out. You see, they'd entered into a covenant with their God. They had become His wife. And so this was adultery in the worst form. Now, Ahab participated in this idolatry, but he wasn't the instigator. Jezebel was the instigator. And so while Ahab was dead, Jezebel's still alive. And she still led God's people to be unfaithful to the Lord. And so he says, how can our nation be whole, not just with the the unfaithfulness to follow these idols, but also with your mother's witchcrafts are so many. This word witchcraft, it means to consult with demonic spirits. Israeli idolatry was not casual. 
You know, it's not like, well, I've got this lucky rabbit's foot. You know, it's not like that. The false prophets, they weren't just liars or hucksters that, you know, people would be like, eh, you know, you're kind of crazy, but, you know, I'll do it. No. They would give oracles and teachings that were inspired by demonic spirits. And so, the people were deceived. They would walk into some of the craziest things that they would convince them to do. To be honest, it's not too different today. Sometimes I'll hear false teachers say things, and I'm like, why is anybody in that building? Like, why is there a crowd listening to this? Why does this guy have a million views? It's not much different. It was widespread, so many, which means the nation was not well. It was not shalom. The nation was sick. Well, this caught Jehoram completely off guard. And now he finally realizes what's going on, that it's a coup. And so Jehoram, verse 23, turned his hands. It means he tried to get the the chariot turned around. Remember, he's facing Jehu. So to go back to the city, you know, it's not like he just put the chariot in reverse. He switches his hands over with with the the straps to get the horses, and he's he's trying to get it turned. And he turned his hands, and he fled, and he said to Ahaziah, there is treachery, O Ahaziah. Get get out of here. And Jehu drew a bow with his full strength. And he smote Jehoram between his arms, and the arrow went out at his heart, and he sunk down in his chariot. Chariot riders had anywhere from, or chariots had anywhere from two to four passengers in them, battle chariots. They'd always have a driver and a shieldman, you know, someone who would protect the person, you know, who's driving or protect the person who's people who are shooting. So you'd have, always have a driver, always have a shieldman, and then you would, in addition, you'd have either two archers or two spearmen or one archer or one spearman. And so when Jehoram turns to flee, I mean, Jehu's, he's got a bow ready. I mean, this is, it's equipped for this. And so he reaches in, takes his time, makes sure he gets a good shot, and he hits him right, right between the shoulder blades, so much so that it comes out the front of his chest where his heart's at, and he just slumps down right there and dies. I read that, and I thought to myself, just like that, King Jehoram entered a godless eternity, just like that, in the snap of a, of a finger. It was over. No more chances to repent. His time was up. Judgment had come. Did Jehoram deserve judgment? Yes. And he didn't deserve it just because he was a sinner like everyone. We've lived with this guy for, for six chapters I think maybe the only king that gets more attention in First and Second Kings than him is his dad, King Ahab. In living with this man for so much time, we have witnessed a person who had chance after chance after chance to repent. Every time God reached out to him, God was faithful, every single time. But Jehoram never laid down his unbelief. He may not have been as bad as his dad, but he was as bad as all of us can be when we refuse to believe. And so even even though we all deserve it, we look at Jehoram and we cannot look at this and say, well, God, why didn't you give him more time? God gave him plenty of time, 12 years. Now, even though this guy deserves it, I can't help but feel a bit sad to see him die. We've hung out with him through his trials, his victories, and his failures. And I, I get sad because it, it just 
doesn't make sense to me why he wouldn't trust in God's love. Like it just doesn't make sense. I get it. I see it happen all the time. You know, you, you see God working in people's lives or keeps reaching out to them, reaching out to them, and they just harden their heart more and more every time. And, and you, you look at them, you try to reason with them, and their eyes just kind of get that hard stance, and, and you just you realize they're not listening. I mean, they're listening, but they don't, it's not hitting home. Those are always very difficult moments, sad moments. Why would he resist to the very end? I think that's what makes me sad. Well, Jehu did not choose this place for a confrontation with the king by mistake. Look at verse 25. He dies there right in the chariot and then said Jehu to Bidkar, his captain, take up, cast him into the portion of the field of Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember how that when I and you rode together after Ahab his father, that the Lord laid this burden upon him. Surely, and then he says what God said, surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his son, says the Lord, and I will requite you in this plat, this field, says the Lord. Remember what God said? We were there, man. We heard the words of the prophet. Now therefore take and cast them into this plat of ground according to the word of the Lord. This is new revelation here. Jehu and Bidkar, we didn't know they served as captains in Ahab's army. We didn't know they were there when Elijah confronted Ahab in this garden. Now, can you imagine what that's like? Ahab's down there, and he's got his new vineyard. He's all excited. He invites some of his, some of his captains in. He's like, I want to show you around this new place I bought. It's great. There might have even been a party, dinner. I don't know. And then, boom, here comes Elijah. Elijah, and he pronounces the judgment. They were there to hear it. They heard God's sentence, the burden. You heard, we heard the burden. God says, maybe you've put it out of your mind, Ahab, but I saw it. I see it like it was yesterday. I see the blood of Naboth. I see the blood of his sons. Now, when we studied Jezebel's murder of Naboth, there was no mention of killing the sons, but it, it makes sense. Ahab could only claim the property if there was no next of kin to put in a claim. So not only did Jezebel have him, him murdered, but his kids murdered too. And so this maybe gives us a, a, a better picture of why God chose Jehu and why these men switched their allegiance to Jehu so quickly, because they'd seen things. And it sounds like the way he's talking about it, things that haunted them. The way Jehu describes it is like he was there when it happened. Perhaps when it was done, God spoke to them through another prophet that God would avenge the innocent deaths of Naboth's sons in the very place Ahab stole because we don't have any recorded words of Elijah when he says that. It's also possible that maybe Elijah's prophecy kind of became bigger, you know, kind of took on its own legend by the soldiers who heard it later on, and maybe that's how Jehu remembers it. Either way, though, he planned this out, and he sees his actions as justified because of the Lord's pronouncement. Throw him into the field. No burial for him. Now, while this is going on, Ahaziah does get away, but not for long. Verse 27 but when Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the way of the garden house. The garden house is uh, the road to Beth Hagon. It's an unknown location south of Jezreel. He's heading towards Samaria or Judah. He's either heading home or Samaria, somewhere where he can either get safe or get help. 
But Jehu followed after him and said, smite him also in the chariot. And so they did so at the going up to Gur. Gur is a hill that starts leading into the Samaritan hillside, which is near to Iblium. That's about five miles south. And that's where they caught him. He flees south toward the hills of Samaria. He doesn't make it more than five miles. They hit him with arrows before he can reach the top. And at this point, he knows he's not going to survive either a trip to Samaria or Judah. So he turns northwest to Megiddo. It says there, verse 28, he fled to Megiddo after he was shot, and then he died there. His driver got him to Megiddo, but the king did not survive his wounds. And so, verse 28, his servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem, buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. And in the eleventh year of Jehoram, the son of Ahab, began Ahaziah to reign over Judah. It's just reminding us he only reigned for one year because Jehoram only reigned for 12 years. So if he started his reign in Jehoram's eleventh year, he was only king for one year. He did not have much impact on his nation. Now, some have questioned, why would Jehu kill the king of Judah? He's not an Israeli king. Why not capture him until the coup's complete, then send him back to Judah once you've secured the throne? That may be true, but Ahaziah was a descendant of Ahab. He was under God's pronouncement of doom. And so the Lord had told him, don't let any of them get away, and so he doesn't let him get away. Two kings dead, two kings gone into an eternity without the Lord. You think they thought living life on their own terms was worth it now? I know they didn't. Well, there's one more person with the power to rally the nation to stop Jehu, Jezebel. So, last few verses here. Jehu returns to Jezreel to deal with her next. Verse 30, and when Jehu was come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard about it, and man, you read this and you think, I don't know if I've ever met a stubborn woman like this. She paints her face, tears her hair, and she goes to gaze out the window. She knows he's coming. She knows her son is dead by this time. But she doesn't intend to fight back. She intends to meet her execution with pride. The word painted there, it means to put on black eye paint. Jezebel was the first goth. (laughs) This dark lead metallic style of polish that highlights the eyes is still a favorite among Middle Eastern women today. It would be applied with an eye pencil on the eyebrows and the eyelashes. According to historians back then, it gave a woman a more youthful appearance and a, quote, deeply glowing fire in the eyes. When it says she teared her head, it means she beautified her face, she did her hair, makeup. She's not doing this to entice Jehu to spare her. She knew what was coming. She's like, I'm going to face my death looking my best. And she positions herself in the window of the room of her hour so she can meet him as soon as, as he drives into the palace. Verse 31, as Jehu entered in at the gate, there the entrance of the palace, it says that she calls out immediately, had Zimri peace when he slew his master? Forty-five years earlier, a guy named Zimri was a military commander in Israel who assassinated King Elah, started a civil war in Israel. His reign only lasted seven days, and he was killed. Most of the military sided with another commander named Omri, who just so happens to be Jezebel's father-in-law. Man, she's a proud, stubborn woman. I mean, to the very bitter end, she asserts herself. You don't intimidate me. You think you've done a good deed, Jehu? How'd that work out for Zimri? You haven't brought peace to the country. You're a fool who started a civil war. You'll join my son in death soon enough. But Jehu is neither intimidated nor impressed because he knows something she doesn't know. 
something Zimri did not have. Because what Jehu's doing, he does at God's command. Verse 32, doesn't, he ignores her. And he lifted up his face to the window and said, who is on my side? He ignores her barbs. He has no plan to give her a dignified death. Who's on my side? At first, nobody comes out. Now, this must have given Jezebel a moment of satisfaction. My people are loyal to me, see? You're a dead man walking. Whether it's today or two weeks from now, you won't survive this. But Jehu persists. He says again, who? Knowing there must be somebody there with a conscience. And this time there is an answer. It says two or three eunuchs looked out from another, another window or somewhere. And Jehu instructs them, throw her down. These eunuchs, these would be castrated court officials chosen to work with the king's harem and the king's wives because if you're castrated, there's no temptation to take advantage of any of these women. There's also no temptation to seek the throne because you can't raise up a seed to pass it on to. I don't know why these guys stepped up to the plate. Maybe they had a grievance. Maybe they were faithful Israelis. Maybe they'd just seen all her wickedness up close and decided to do something about it. Maybe they saw the writing on the wall and they said, better side with him than with her. For whatever reason, though, when they do step up, Jehu does not order any fancy execution for this woman. He says, throw her out of the window. And so they threw her down. And her blood spattered on the wall, on the horses. And then he takes his chariot and he rides it over her, tramples her under his chariot. Then he decides to go in and have dinner, verse 34. And when he's come in, he did eat and he drank. And after he's done eating, he says, go now. He says, go see now this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. After he's done eating, again, I don't think this is a person I'd like to cross Seems fitting he'd enjoy a meal before thinking about dealing with her corpse. He says, go, go now, go see this woman's, cursed woman's corpse, bury her. She's a king's daughter. When he calls her a cursed woman, maybe he's talking about God's judgment, or maybe he's just talking about how she infected Israel with so many problems. Either way, he says, bury her. Number one, because Israel had a law that you could not leave your enemy dead, your dead enemy on display through the night. You could do it at first, but it couldn't last the night. But number two, Jezebel's not just anyone. She's the daughter of a Phoenician king. Not giving her corpse a proper burial would be an insult to the, the kingdoms of Phoenicia. So he says, go out and bury her. She is a king's daughter. Doesn't say she's the queen. I'm not worried about what our nation will do. I'm worried about what other nations might do. We don't need to start a war with them. But notice what happens when they go out to look at her corpse. And they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Wherefore, they came again and told him, and he says, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, in the portion of Jezreel shall dogs eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the carcass of Jezebel shall be as the dung upon the face of the field in the portion of Jezreel so that they shall not say, this is Jezebel. Again, he quotes 1 Kings 21, 23. I already read it earlier. God said this is what would happen to her, and it's exactly what happened to her. There'd be no body to bury, no one to, to mourn her and go, oh, my Jezebel. No, there'd just be a skull and some bones. Everything else should be Jezebel fertilizer. She may have put on her makeup and her best outfit, but there would be no burial ceremony with all that. Be no tomb where admirers could congregate and say, oh, here lies the great queen. 
I think the writer points this out because he doesn't want us to think that Jehu made God's prediction come to pass. Jehu tried to provide a burial for her, but God's Word trumped his efforts. Again, not to bury someone was considered a shameful, insulting thing to do to a person back then, but that the Lord is the one who caused it to happen means it's an earned shame. It's an earned disgrace. So instead of a tomb for Jezebel to commemorate her life, the absence of a tomb would make her a proverb. Don't turn out like Jezebel. Look at what God did to her. Well, this takes care of Ahab's sons, takes care of Jezebel, but Ahab had other male descendants. So, and then, of course, there are still Jezebel's priests to deal with. We'll look at that in part two of the Godfather, I mean, Jehu's takeover, when we study chapter 10. Not next Sunday night, because we got youth takeover next Sunday night, but the week afterwards. So, let's stand. Lord, it's not a truth we meditate on too often that you keep your promises even when you judge. But Lord, when we think of that, we realize the seriousness of your judgment. We also don't want to forget how many chapters we spent with you reaching out to these guys. Lord, you are not unmerciful. You are not impatient, Lord. You are not unkind. You are not someone who doesn't try to work with us, who tries to reach us. Lord, you're the exact opposite. You're constantly drawing us to yourself. So, Lord, as we as we think of the judgment that came upon Jehoram and Jezebel, his mom, and his nephew, Ahaziah, Lord, remind us that you reached out to them plenty of times. Remind us of your great love, your great patience, and your great mercy. And Lord, that while you are all those things, there does come a time when you call judgment your slow work, when you move in that slow work and you have to bring it to pass. So, Lord, break our hearts for the lost people that we know, that we would pray for them, share the gospel with them. Lord, that we know, Lord, that you're faithful to your promises, both to forgive and to judge. In Jesus' name, amen.